You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our text, which will be the first question and answer from Lord's Day 44 concerning the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment, of course, which is a prohibition of coveting that which belongs to your neighbor. So in connection with that, We will read two passages. The first is from Genesis chapter 3, the verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized They were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We'll now turn to Romans chapter 7, where we read the verses 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting was, or really was, if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me all kind, every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed in question and answer 113 in the Heidelberg Catechism. What does the tenth commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the very first thing to make clear about this tenth commandment, as we consider it this afternoon, is what it says. Often we summarize this commandment by saying, you shall not covet. And you'll probably catch me doing that again this afternoon, saying that this commandment tells you not to covet. 
But if you would look more closely at this commandment, you would realize that that is in fact not what it says. The Lord does not command us not to covet. Coveting, in fact, is not a bad thing. The young woman in Song of Songs is said to covet, to desire being near her lover. Is that such a bad thing? We read in Psalm 19 that the law of God is desirable. What it says there is the law of God is covetable. We're supposed to covet the law of God. Coveting is not wrong. Desires are not wrong. Desires are good. But it's all about what you desire. You can think of Psalm 37, which we read to, uh, which we sang together this afternoon. Where David says in Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Trust in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. There are desires in your heart and there are good desires in your heart that the Lord is pleased to give to you. The question really is, what are those desires? What are the desires of your heart? And so that's the question before us as we consider the Tenth Commandment this afternoon in Lord's Day 44, question answer 113. What do you desire? It is not that desires and coveting are bad, but what we desire. So we'll consider desiring what is wrong, what is wrong, and what is it to desire what is wrong, and why do we do that? And second, we'll consider the result of these wrong desires. And thirdly, we'll consider desiring what is good. What's the solution? What's the flip side to the Tenth Commandment? Of all the things that we're called not to desire, how do we avoid that? And how do we pursue desiring what is good? So first of all, we consider desiring what is wrong. The commandment, again, we restate, does not condemn desires. It forbids wrong desires. You shall not desire what is not lawfully yours. And you shall not seek to get your desires through unlawful means. You shall not desire what is not lawfully yours. And you shall not seek to get your desire, even if it is a good thing to pursue through unlawful means. That's what the commandment is encompassing. You'll notice you probably recall in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 that it's always you shall not covet your neighbor's something. You shall not covet your neighbor's something. It doesn't say you shall not covet. It says don't covet the wrong things. First of all, it says don't covet your neighbor's house. And certainly included in this is your neighbor's property. Don't covet that your house, the property, the land that belongs to your neighbor. The prophet Micah rebukes the wickedness of the people in Judah in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, they covet fields and they seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. The wickedness of the people of Judah at that time was expressed in their coveting and then they're fulfilling that coveting with respect to the houses of their neighbors. And you recognize about this, this part of the commandment that It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much you have, whether great riches 
or great poverty, coveting your neighbor's house and property is something that affects us all. It's an insidious sin. An insidious sin. It's a sin that, that so easily grows and grows and grows. It so easily takes root and just like a weed remains there and spreads throughout your whole life. No matter how much you have, you can always want more. Think of the account of Ahab, who had many vineyards all over the land of Israel, but who coveted his neighbor Naboth's vineyard. He was willing to put him to death in order to receive what he coveted. This desire for your neighbor's house and land, if you think about it, has largely shaped our world's history. The desire of one man or one king or one nation for the house and land and property of their neighbor has led nations to great wars. It's led to great bloodshed. It has shaped the course of history. It's fueled war and conflict from the very earliest days of our history. This commandment says you shall not covet. You shall not desire your neighbor's house or land. It goes on to say you are not to covet your neighbor's wife. Of course, from the word of God, well known is that desire that grew in David's heart, King David, for another man's wife, a desire that led him not only to the sin of coveting, but to the sin of adultery and of murder as well. This desire, too, has shaped history, led to the rise and fall of kings, and daily the results of another man's coveting ends up on the front pages of our newspapers and another person's life in shame and shambles as a result. But we should recognize that this commandment not to covet your neighbor's wife is not only related to sexual desires, it's not only related to adultery, but there's many other possibilities here as well. What about the husband who desires a wife that can clean more, cook better, take better care of the children, dresses better, etc. Maybe you smile at the thought of that, but how much misery has been caused in a marriage where a husband is no longer content with the wife that he has and desires another one? Think of what that marriage is going to feel like, look like. What's life going to be like that for that wife? Or if the situation is flipped around for that husband. The commandment goes on, of course, house, neighbor, and then lists a bunch of other things. that You're not to covet a man's possessions, his manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And perhaps someone this afternoon is thinking, well, well, that's great. I have never coveted my neighbor's ox or donkey or manservant or maidservant. This part of the command is an easy one to obey. Well, of course, this is written in the time when everybody had a manservant or, or maidservant, or many people did. Uh, everyone had an ox or a donkey to help to do their work. But this is re- respecting the, <clears throat> the possessions of your neighbor. Today we have cars and we have clothes And we have jobs and vacations and we have bank accounts and gardens and so many other things that can be coveted. If you're not sure what this commandment covers, 
then just look around you very quickly. You'll be able to find things to covet. And if that's not helping, then just open up your Langley Advance or your Langley Times on Thursday. You'll see a stack of flyers about this high. There's lots of marketers around that will tell you what you ought to covet if you do not already know. Coveting is pervasive. It's all over our lives. The desire to have what does not lawfully belong to us. But what sits behind all this coveting? What makes something, what makes a certain kind of coveting wrong? What sits behind it? Well, essentially this coveting, this type of coveting that the commandment forbids is a desire for what God has not given you. A desire for what God has not given you. And what he has said to you, you shall not have this. You shall not have this. This is very clear from, for example, Joshua 6 and 7. Joshua 6 and 7 is that well-known account of the fall of Jericho and the subsequent sin of Achan. Achan, who goes and steals a Babylonian robe and some silver and some gold from there, he sees it, he finds it beautiful, and he takes it to his tent. Now, you may wonder what's so wrong about that. On many other occasions, many Israelites went to the the cities that they had just taken over. They took the possessions. They took possessions from the Egyptians before they left there. They took possessions from many other cities as they conquered them. What was so wrong with Achan's sin? Why was that the sin of coveting and the sin of stealing? Whereas the other times in Israel, that Israel, the Israelites took, it was not sinful at all. Well, Achan's desire for these beautiful things would not have been wrong except for the clear command of God. The people of Israel were not to take anything from the city of Jericho. It was devoted to the Lord. God said to them, you shall not take it. And just like the Apostle Paul will later say, because God gave the command, therefore all sorts of covetous desires grew up in my heart. Desiring what God has said you shall not have is what is wrong. And nowhere is that more clear than in Genesis chapter 3, which we read together. Genesis Chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The problem was not that this woman found the fruit desirable. As she said, they were allowed to eat from the, the fruit of the trees all in all the other parts of the garden. There were lots of trees that they could eat from to their heart's content. They could enjoy all of that wonderful fruit that God gave them in the Garden of Eden. But the problem, the sin, was in setting their desire on what God had said to them, you shall not have. God had forbidden that they eat the fruit from that tree. And so when we dig down into coveting and into wrong desires, then you realize the profound truth of what the Heidelberg Catechism says in answer 113, when it says that this commandment requires that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. 
When God tells us, you shall not have this, this is not yours to have, we sin when we desire what is wrong. What's the result then of desiring these wrong things? This kind of coveting is such a deep down sin, isn't it? It's such a deep down sin. This sin, in fact, gives birth to so many other sins that are listed in the law. This sin can give birth to adultery. This sin can give birth to murder. This sin can give birth to stealing. It's such a deep down sin. It has to do with our invisible and indiscernible desires. It sits below the surface. But the question is, does it remain there? If we were to harbor covetousness, it's possible, isn't it? To harbor covetousness in your heart, but yet live your entire life. And no one will know that your heart and your life and your desires are full of wanting what God has said you shall not have. This sin is so deep down, but does it remain there? It's tempting, in fact, to think that since no one can see these unlawful desires, it's okay to hang on to them. If you're going to break any of the commandments, we might think you might as well break this one. No one can tell the difference. So, is it in fact smart, if you're going to break one of the commandments, to pursue the less obvious sin of coveting? Well, as Scripture speaks about coveting, coveting, what belongs to your neighbor, it reveals that, in fact, over the long run, this sin does not stay inside. But rather, it starts deep down and hidden from view, but the rot moves from the inside out. These wrong desires, Scripture teaches us, leads to all sorts of unrest and anxiety and worry and discontentment. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 8, the teacher there records, There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. He was always working, always toiling, always worrying, always fretting. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Coveting led him to work, to toil, to unrest, and to discontent. Coveting also leads to fights and quarrels and division among even God's people. It affects God's people. James says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, What causes fights and quarrels among you? What's the reason why you're always fighting with each other? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So it leads to unrest, anxiety, discontentment. It also leads to fights and quarreling. And further, as we already mentioned, it leads to breaking of of all the other commandments. You look at the second table of the law, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. All of these are expressions or can be expressions of sin against the 10th commandment. All these can be born of coveting 
what belongs to your neighbor. What else does coveting result in? Well, if we return to that unlawful desire that Eve had for the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you realize that the result of, of the birth and the nursing and the expression of that coveting was in fact estrangement from God. It was separation from God. The result of coveting was death. The result of coveting is death. Death from the inside out. Paul says in Romans 7, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment, and he's talking about coveting there, when the commandment against coveting came, sin sprang to life and I died. So the result of coveting what belongs to our neighbor is anxiety, unrest, discontent, fights and quarrels, Death, estrangement from God. We need to ask ourselves, is this why God has given this commandment? Paul says, if I hadn't been given this commandment, I wouldn't have even known what coveting was. This commandment came along and I died. Is that why God has given this commandment then? That we would all recognize the coveting that goes on in our hearts And we'd be filled with hopelessness and misery and give up and die. Or does God have another purpose in giving us this command? Well, he does have another purpose, and that purpose has been achieved. Where sin is real, where sin is discovered, where sin is brought to light, just as this command does, as it probes the very depths of our hearts, where sin is revealed, there atonement is possible. There forgiveness is applied. There the work of Jesus Christ is effective. Jesus Christ came into this world and he coveted no wrong thing. He was full of coveting in his life, but what he coveted what was what, what, what was right and good. He didn't covet riches or power or anything of his neighbors. Throughout his whole life, he constantly rejected those things. But rather, he gave up everything that he had to the point of hanging on a cross so that there was no real estate on earth left for him. There was no place even for his feet to lay on the earth, and he was hung upon a cross. But in this, not coveting anything that belonged to his neighbor, he coveted every right thing. The desire of his heart was the glory and the honor and the obedience of his father. He coveted the lives of his people. He wanted his people to live. He coveted the fulfillment of salvation, the fulfillment of God's great plan. He coveted the restoration of what had it had been before Eve and Adam had coveted what was wrong and against God's command in the garden. And so setting his heart upon what was good, he rejected all discontent, all envy, all jealousy, all greed. On the cross, the man who wanted nothing but to please his father bore the wrath of his father against sin. On the cross, 
his desire for God's glory, his coveting after God's glory and our salvation came together in the ultimate sacrifice and he died. So the question before us then is what is the result of coveting for you? What will be the result of coveting for you? Will it be death as your desires work like a rot and destroy you from the inside out? Or will the result of this command be life as you trust in what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf, has done for you? Will you believe that he has done, that he has coveted no wrong thing and has coveted every right thing because he coveted your salvation? And so finally we come to desiring what is good. As we said, there are so many things that we are called not to covet. You may wonder, well, how do we know what are the right things that we should covet? Do we go to the mall and we have to look at everything and think, well, am I allowed to have that? Can I want that pair of jeans and not that shirt? And how do I know which one I'm supposed to desire and which one I'm not supposed to desire? Maybe something in that stock of flyers is useful and good for me. How do I know? Lots of questions that this commandment can bring up. But in pursuing obedience to this commandment, it's necessary to go right to the heart of the matter. And from there, everything else becomes more clear. When you desire not what your neighbor has, but what God has given you in Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice for your sins, then you are on the right path to covet the right things, to covet what is good. God in Christ not only saves you from your wrong desires, but he also grows in you and nurtures in you good desires, the desire for what is right. And that is what makes this commandment so exciting and so invigorating. This commandment that probes the depths of our heart in revealing our sin also reveals to us that God goes to work on the very depths of our heart in his renewal of our lives. He goes right to our very wills and he works in us good desires. Desires that are pleasing to Him, that are righteous and holy, and bring glory to Him. It's beautiful to understand that God goes to work on His people, goes to work in our lives right at the very core of our being. And so the point of this command is not to kill desire in us. It's not to turn us into a bunch of Stoics who have no desire, who reject it outright. Rather, this command calls us to be full of desire, but to set our desires in the right place. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ pursued the glory of the Father, we too are called to pursue the glory of God in our lives. Jesus himself taught us, seek first what? Set your desire first upon what things? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all of these things will be added to you. You don't even have to worry about desiring them. And so if desiring the wrong thing is the root of so many sins, then realize that desiring the right things and seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is the root of all kinds of righteousness and all kinds of good desires in our lives. 
The Lord Jesus calls us to put our desire, first of all, in the right place. When he speaks about seeking first the kingdom of God, the context is that he shows us that we worry and are anxious when we set our desires upon what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear. He says we, we make ourselves worried and anxious by all of these things, by all of these cares of the world. He says don't pursue those things. Instead, pursue Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. When you set your desire on God and his kingdom. Then you find contentment. You find contentment with, with whatever you have. And in fact, you find the fulfillment of your desires. And so seeking God and his kingdom is the solution to covetousness. In Psalm 73, the psalmist Asaph recounts, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. He's talking to God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph finds real and genuine contentment, the fulfillment of his desires In God alone. The same is true for the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Philippians. In Philippians 2, uh, Philippians 4, sorry, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but instead turn to God in thankful prayer. Don't be anxious about things in this world. Don't turn your attention toward them, but rather turn your attention to God and give thanks to God in prayer. What he's saying is set your heart upon God, rejoice in what God has given you in Jesus Christ, fill up with thankfulness to God, and then you will find peace and contentment. That's the way to avoid coveting what is wrong. It's by by wholeheartedly coveting what is right and good in coveting God. And he goes on there right after that section To say, set your hearts and your minds on all the things that are good and noble and praiseworthy. So the secret to gaining contentment and avoiding sin, the sin of coveting what belongs to your neighbor, Paul says, is not rejecting your desires. It's not saying, well, I'm not supposed to desire what my neighbor has, so I'm not going to desire anything at all. But rather, Paul says, set your desires upon God and find contentment in him. When you find contentment in God, then you'll covet what is good. You'll love and desire the glory of God. You'll covet the law of God, the praise of God. Then you'll desire the well-being of your neighbor as you're filled with love for them, the increase of their spiritual and material well-being. You'll forget about worrying what you need and you'll rejoice in what God is giving to those around you as you love them. You'll rejoice in everything that your neighbor has because you'll recognize that you already have everything you need. You have the fulfillment of all your desires in God and in God alone. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. What more do you want? And so as we've noted with all of these commandments, 
Our Lord Jesus Christ does not simply save us from our sin, but he also saves us for righteousness, for a life that is good, a life that is beautiful, a life that pursues serving God in every way. And this 10th commandment then reveals the depths of God's work in this regard as he goes to work not only on our actions and our thoughts, but on our will and on our deepest desires. He transforms us from the inside out so that through the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us more and more, we eagerly desire to worship God. More and more, we covet God's love and the goodness that he lavishes upon us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.